0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. I want to welcome you as we kick off this brand new series titled... Pillar of truth. And the reason why we're in this series can be found in the book of first Timothy chapter number three, beginning in, in verse 14. And in the words of the apostle Paul, it reads this way. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of the God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and a buttress of truth. You see the church is God's instrument that he uses in the world to express and defend and uphold his truth. It is the church that God uses to lift the truth up before a dark world. The truth about the universe. The truth about humanity. The truth about our fallen nature. The truth about the good news of Jesus Christ. The church is the instrument that God is using right now to reach out to a lost and broken World, to share with them the hope and the grace that comes from a personal relationship. With Jesus Christ. It is the church that God is using right now to shine the light of truth in the world around us. It's the church that God uses to spread the gospel around the world. It is the church that God uses to bring real hope and comfort to the poor and afflicted. It is the church that God uses to bring real healing to broken families and broken communities and those struggling with addiction and those who find this world a dark and lonely place to be. As everything in the world falls apart, the church. Remains the steadfast pillar of truth. And because of that, Paul tells Timothy, I'm writing you this so that you may know how the people or the members of the church ought to behave because ultimately they are the church. You see, the church, it is not a building. It is not property. It's not a denominational organization. The church is a living, breathing organism that's made up of living, breathing individual people. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two, verse nineteen, he says, For then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by god or in mean, a dwelling place for god by the spirit you see this right here this isn't the church this church isn't this building you Are the church. You who are right here are the church. And right here, right now, the church is gathered on this property. But the moment you guys leave, the church will no longer be here. The church will be dispersed out into the community because the church isn't a building. The church is people. And so the people are the church, and the church is the pillar of truth, which means the people collectively are all the pillar of truth. We all make up that pillar that upholds the truth for the world to see. That's why Paul points out and says that it's important how we behave in the church and how we behave also as the church. Now, this idea that the church... Which is made up of people is the pillar of truth in the world around us. And this text right here in first Timothy that expresses that those are going to be the springboard by which we are going to use to jump off into this new series that we're kicking off here today. It is, it's the starting point of all that we're going to do and talk about in the coming weeks. And let me just tell you why August for us is an important month. It's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, in August, we celebrate our church anniversary. In fact, next week, we're celebrating our 78th year as a local congregation. Okay? And this is, this is an important time of year for us because we take the time to look back at our church anniversary to our whole history. But we also look back over the last year, what we've done and what's been happening, what God's been doing at First Baptist Church. The second thing is the following Sunday is Vision Sunday it is the sunday where we take some time and we look forward at the direction that we're headed in it's the time that we get clear about the mission and the vision of first baptist church it's a time that we're time for us to talk about you know what we're looking forward to right? and the, the and the things that we're looking forward to do in the next coming months and so august is actually is perfect time is a perfect time for us to to launch this series because august represents for us a natural point of transition because that's where we are as a church we're at a point of transition. And what I mean by that is, we're not talking about changing everything that we do here and, and, and how everything looks and all that stuff. No. Instead, what we're talking about is growing and maturing as a church body. This congregation is beginning to grow spiritually. And as it happens, there are going to be milestones, and there are going to be transition points where there will be shifts in the things that we will focus on as a local gathering of believers. In fact, <clears throat> When I first began to pastor here, one of the things that uh, we focused on as a church is, was to tear down the barriers that prevent people from coming here. We focused on helping people around us to know that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter where you come from, and no matter what you've done, you're welcome here. You're welcome in our community, you're welcome in our, in our building, and you're welcome in our lives. And our focus was to remove all the obstacles that keep people out because we want people to come here. And hear the gospel and encounter God and meet Jesus and have their life changed. And another focus that we had was, was that we're going to focus most of our messages on essential doctrine. We have we have really focused on what, what what you need to know to be saved. We have focused on the things you know that are essential to faith, like the, the like the existence of God. It's pretty important to believe, right? Um, if you're going to be saved, is that God exists, right? We, we dealt with the existence of God. We also have focused on the deity of Christ, that, that Christ is God in the flesh. And we also focus on salvation by faith alone in Christ alone and repentance and the authority of scripture. We've also spent a lot of time talking about spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer and worship. And we've talked a lot about discipleship, actually learning how to follow Christ. And, and these are things that we're going to continue to talk about Because we're going to always work on tearing down whatever barriers that keep people out of the church. And we're going to always talk about the essential things of faith and discipleship. But we're at a place right now in the growth of our congregation as it relates to spiritual maturity that we need to take the next step. We need to build on this foundation that has been laid. We need to now begin to focus on the next level of our spiritual growth because we can't remain spiritual infants forever. We need to grow towards spiritual maturity. And the focus of the coming months is going to be to that end, and this series is essentially the the launching pad for that, because <clears throat> this series is based on the three letters that Paul wrote at the end of his ministry to help a couple of pastors, Timothy and Titus, and their efforts to help the churches that they have served to move toward Christian maturity, and 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 these churches were experiencing significant growing pains and and, and they met serious challenges as they struggled. Towards maturity, and so Paul wrote the letters of First and Second Timothy and Titus to encourage to help these two in their efforts and, and, and there are several key themes that run throughout all of these letters and among these key themes that Paul develops is number one the teaching and the preservation of sound doctrine. Paul encourages Titus and Timothy both to teach sound. Orthodox Christian teaches he encourages him to focus on the absolute rock bottom solid truth of scripture and then number two Paul focuses on the fruit that comes as a result of teaching sound doctrine which is good works because good works follow from sound doctrine sound doctrine should always result in right action. Right? The teaching and the preservation of the word of God should result in an internal change of those who hear those teachings. And, and as they apply those teachings to their lives, something should change. And this change is manifested in the behavior of the believer. Right action or good works follows sound doctrine. Now, as we read the letters together, we're going to see these two things pop up over and over and over and over again. You know, defending and teaching sound biblical doctrine and the natural results of teaching sound biblical doctrine, which is good works or right action. And and this is the point of of the transition for our church because we have been teaching foundational sound biblical doctrine for the last four years. I mean, the church is always taught that but we have really been focusing on these essential truths for the last four years and as a result we're beginning to see growth and maturity in many believers and now is a time for us to 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 be encouraging our church family to move beyond just learning doctrine and hearing the word but actually allowing the doctrine to shape them who they are that it's allowed to change them in every part of their lives okay it's time for us to grow up now again we're going to continue to focus on being a church you know, that, that, that welcomes all to come here. And we're going to continually teach the foundational basic doctrines over and over and over again, especially the gospel. But it is time for us to take it to the next level. It's time for us to take ownership of that doctrine and begin to live it out and walk it out in our daily lives. And so this series is going to help us to see that and hopefully is going to help us to do that. And so this series is titled Pillar of Truth. And as I said, is based on the three letters that Paul wrote near the end of his ministry, which are first and second. Timothy in the letter to Titus. Now, before we jump all the way in here, though, let me just back up here for a second and let me just kind of share with you the context of these letters and ultimately what these letters teach. Now, the first thing that you need to know is that All three of these letters were written by the Apostle Paul. In fact, in the introduction of each letter, Paul identifies himself as the author. And this is the same Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. Now, unlike Paul's other letters that were written to specific churches, these letters are written to two pastors that Paul has put in charge of certain churches. And so these letters are called or known as the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles. Now, Paul was once... You know, a man named Saul who was a zealous Jew who had it out for the Christians. He was one of the original persecutors of Christians, right? In fact, uh, for nearly two years, he imprisoned and killed many Christians and families in the first century. But when Paul, you know, when he was on his way to Damascus, he was headed there to arrest, you know, the the Christians in that town and destroy that church. When Paul was on his way... Um, He experienced something that changed his life. He met the risen Jesus Christ and he became a convert to Christianity. And not only did he become a convert to Christianity, Paul became the most prolific evangelist and, and church planner the world has ever known. In fact, if you look at this map right here, on this map you'll see four different colored paths that Paul took. These are Paul's four missionary journeys. Paul traveled thousands and thousands of miles, and he planted 20 churches throughout Asia and Europe, and he visited many more churches, and he spoke to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Paul is largely responsible for the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, and Paul took his calling very seriously. In fact, when he introduces himself, In all three of these letters, he points out that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? Which means he was a sent one. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command and the will of God. Now, Paul knows... That, this, that it was God who called him. He knows that God converted him. He knows that God empowers him and sustains him. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to glorify God in all he does. And so he takes his job as a minister of the gospel so very seriously. And so he's traveling around the Roman Empire, planting churches, building up local leaders, right, And then he would periodically come back to these churches and check in and make sure that things are going well. And he would encourage these these, these churches and build up these churches. And then by the second missionary journey, Paul began to write letters to these various churches in order to give them instructions and correct errors and encourage them to continue in the faith. In fact, Paul's first letter that we have in our Bible is the letter to the Galatians, which is written about 51 AD, which is less than 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And And he wrote this letter to correct the false teaching. That, that some people were teaching that, that, that a person had to become a Jew and observe the law to be a real Christian to be saved. Now, understand, this letter is 20 years removed from Christ, you know, and, 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 and he's explaining in this letter, in writing, how we are saved and justified by, justified by faith alone, which means this idea that our theology, of the Christian theology was built over time, over the centuries, is actually a false idea because our theology goes all the way back to the beginning. Now, Paul, from the time that he was saved until the time of his death, he was 100% sold out for the gospel and 100% sold out for Jesus. And so no no matter where he went, no matter what he did, he was busy ministering to people, preaching the gospel, giving instructions to the church, raising up leaders, and writing letters. And it was his mission to get the church started and get it up and running, but it was also his mission to keep it running, And a huge part of his ministry life can be found in the book of Acts. You can read all about it. In fact, if you've not read the book of Acts for yourself, then you need to take some time this week and read it. Read the whole thing, okay? Because it's a story of the early church, and it's a story about Paul and his work to build and sustain the early church. And you will certainly understand more about what we're talking about and where we're going with this series um, over the next few weeks if you'll take the time. To read it. Now, the book of Acts ends with Paul being arrested and sent to Rome, and he's put on trial before Caesar. That's how the Book of Acts ends, okay? But that is not the actual end of Paul's story, because Paul actually, while he was imprisoned in Rome, shared the gospel with everyone he came in contact with. Okay, and as a result, he converted a number of his guards and high-level government officials to Christianity. His his first imprisonment was really a house arrest, and, and so he was able to spread the gospel even more throughout Rome. And after his two years of imprisonment, he was released and he immediately went back to work, visiting churches and putting faithful men in charge and building up leaders for these churches. And it was during this time that Paul sent Timothy to the city of Ephesus and Titus to the city of Crete, where where, where, these were two areas that had huge problems in their churches. And, And he left these men behind in these areas making to make things right um, in these churches, and, and, and to help these churches progress out of infancy to spiritual maturity. And it was a huge undertaking because these churches had gigantic problems. They had serious issues, and Paul knew it. That's why he wrote these two young pastors, these letters. He wrote them to encourage them and to help them and, and to strengthen them and help them to stay focused on their job. Now, somewhere between 62 and 64 AD, though, Paul wrote First Timothy in the letter to Titus. But then, Emperor Nero took power in Rome. And it all went bad from there, because a very dark era dawned on the early church, because the persecution that broke out against the Christianity was rampant all over the Roman Empire. Right? Christians were being persecuted all over the Roman Empire, because Nero hated Christians. And it was because of this that Paul once again was arrested and sent to prison in Rome. But this time he wasn't on house arrest. He was actually sent to a Roman prison cell where it was dark and extremely harsh, right? The the conditions were much different. And so he was sent there to await his execution uh, because he was sentenced to die because of his Christian faith. And it was during this last imprisonment before the execution that Paul wrote his final letter to 2 Timothy. And in this letter he wrote it to encourage Timothy. Think about this that he were to encourage Timothy. Paul's in prison. He's going to die, but he's writing to Timothy to encourage him because Timothy was facing some really difficult times because it was hard to be a Christian at that time. Many believers were being tortured and killed and, and persecuted, and many people were leaving the faith to spare themselves of that persecution. All right, and false teachers continue to pop up and try to steal away true believers, and Timothy was probably a bit discouraged by all that. In fact, it was believed that Timothy witnessed Paul's arrest. And so Paul wrote him this letter to strengthen his friends so that he would continue to do what do the work that Paul had started. Because Paul knew that's how the gospel and how sound doctrine would, would continue from generation to generation. That it would continue through people like Timothy and, and Titus teaching and defending sound doctrine and building up new leaders who would do the same thing. And so... That's a brief outline of Paul's story and the story about how we got the letters that we're going to look at. But let's take a minute and let's talk about Timothy and, and Titus for a minute and, and the cities that they're working in. Timothy was a teenager when he met Paul, and, and his family lived in Lystra, which was in Galatia. And his father was a Greek man. And we don't know anything about his faith, but Timothy's mom and grandmother were, were Jewish women who were faithful, and they taught Timothy the Old Testament scriptures when he was young. And as, as the women heard Paul preach, they believed in Jesus. And so, and, and because of that, so did Timothy. Timothy you know came to faith in Christ you know, relatively young, and, and Timothy actually may have seen Paul heal a man in in his own town, but Timothy was also probably there when when an angry mob you know drugged Paul out of town and stoned him and leaving him for dead now a couple of years later, when Paul came back to Lystra um, uh, on his second journey, Paul invited. Timothy to travel with him and, and go to work in the ministry with him. Now, Titus, on the other hand, okay, it, it was during Paul's first missionary journey that the young man heard Paul preach about Jesus. And Titus was completely Greek, right? And, and so he had not known anything about Christianity, and he certainly didn't worship the God of the Bible. He, um, he, he was completely, thoroughly a Greek. Okay, and 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 so but he came and he listened to Paul, and when he did, Titus's heart responded to the message of the gospel and he believed in Jesus. And Paul then then brought him to Jerusalem to show the apostles and the other Jewish believers how a Greek, a non Jew, could actually love God as much as they did. And Titus, you know, represented all the non-Jewish people who became Christians and were completely accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ, like most of us. Now, now, Timothy and Titus were both really good friends of Paul. They were, they were dear to him. And he believed in these men and he trusted both of them. That's why he gave them such a tough assignment. Because he knew that they could be trusted. right? And so, Timothy was sent to Ephesus and Titus was sent to Crete. Now, the city of Ephesus it was an important political and educational commercial center in the roman empire in fact it was probably the fourth largest city in the world at the time and the church in ephesus was started by paul but over the years the church in ephesus began to be plagued by huge issues such as disorderly worship materialism the lack of qualified leadership and those and worst of all it was it was filled with false teachings Okay, and Ephesus lacked a mature core of people in the congregation that, so, uh, so that the spiritual struggles began to, to grow, that they, couldn't, they didn't have the ability to teach you know, these core teachings that, that kept things together. And so this manifested itself in a lack of fruit in the lives of those who called themselves believers. And to make matters worse, there were actually a couple of persuasive and very influential false teachers who were leading many of the Ephesians in the church away. And so Paul sent Timothy to straighten out this mess. Now, the island of Crete is one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea, and it lies south of the mainland in Greece. But it's about 160 miles across and 35 miles wide, and it's believed that Crete was, has, has a very old church, or it had a very old church on it, because um, it's, it's believed that among the people that were in Judea on the day of Pentecost— Uh, When the Holy Spirit came, a number of people from Crete were there. In fact, Acts uh, 2.11 makes that point. That these people from Crete witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit. And they listened to Peter preach the gospel as 2,000 people got saved that day. And and, and it's believed that some of the Cretans are the ones that got saved. And that these people went back and started the church in Crete. And then Paul visited this island. Uh, which actually is about 90 cities on the island. And he visited the churches, which made up a number of congregations um, that were there. And before he left, he commissioned Titus to take charge because a church in Crete was, was again, in a huge mess. It, it, was, it was a huge mess because it didn't have, you know, strong, mature leadership. Okay? There was, they didn't have mature Christians leading the churches. And so there, there were few, if any, spiritually mature leaders who were able to teach sound biblical doctrine. And the church suffered because you know, the Cretans were regarded by everyone really as some of the most depraved people in the entire world. In fact, Paul quotes Epimenides, uh, who was actually a Cretan himself. Uh, who said about 600 years before Paul was there, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. The people were notorious for their immorality and their debauchery. Okay? And they were notorious for all the ugly, vile things that they did. So you can imagine what kind of mess the church was in you know, when there's no mature leadership in that kind of an environment. And so Titus you know, and Timothy really had to, to work, you know, work hard. Their work was cut out for them. Both of these these assignments were hard and and the expectations were high. And Paul made a point to write both of these men to encourage them and give them direction. And these letters became Paul's last instruction for the leaders of, of the church and, and, and really for the church itself. And in these letters, Paul identifies several key issues that have a tendency to pop up in churches. Uh, they can pop up at any time, but especially when a church is spiritually young or theologically impressionable. And especially when a church is growing either numerically or spiritually growing. Okay? And because these issues you know, that Paul identify can pop up easily and really at any time, and they're so pervasive, Um, These letters that that he wrote are just as valuable and instructive for the churches in our postmodern era as they were in the first century. Because in the postmodern era, we're living right now, you know, many churches... Have fallen into the pitfalls that Paul outlines in, in these letters, many of the churches have grown soft on doctrine, which, which are the orthodox teachings of the Christian faith, and many churches have grown soft on leadership qualifications and, and cultivating godly leaders. Many churches have, be, have become culturally centered instead of christ centered and many of these churches have seen have, seen, have even grown soft on the authority of Scripture. They're just, they claim that, that maybe the Bible isn't fully the Word of God. In fact, many churches today exemplify what Paul you know, tells us. In 2 Timothy you know, 4, uh, verses 3 and 4, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off you know, into myths. And this certainly describes, you know, a growing percentage of Christians in our culture today because people don't want to hear that without Christ you cannot be saved and you will end up in a real literal place called hell. People don't want to hear that sexual immorality is sin. People don't want to hear that there is only one way to God and that is Jesus Christ. People don't want to hear words like sin and judgment and repentance and hell and justification. Instead, what they want to hear is that Jesus is their homeboy, okay? And that God is there to make sure all their material dreams come true, the prosperity gospel. And they want to hear that faith in God is about them becoming happy. Okay? And that loving God should not, you know, that, that a loving God should not, that would not ever send anybody to hell, right? They want to hear things like the Bible doesn't address homosexuality and that God is okay with every kind of sexual identity that you adopt as long as there's real love in that relationship. That's what they want to hear. It seems that the more, you know, and more of those who profess Christ, they reject the orthodox doctrine in favor of teachings that scratch their itching ears. And this is really actually an interesting expression because think about this. Have you ever had the inside of your ear itch? It's kind of annoying, right? And and what happens is when you take something like a Q-tip and then you kind of like run it in your ear and you kind of run it around and you know, scratch it and you're like, oh, oh, that feels so much better, right? You feel relief, right? When you scratch your itching ear, right? Because that's what you get. It feels good. And that's what people want. They don't want the truth. They want relief. Understand that. They don't want the truth. They want relief. They want to feel better about their lives and their choices. They want someone to justify for them what they're doing and what they believe so they can feel better. You see, it's not actually about getting better. It's not actually about doing better. It's about feeling better. Our culture is filled with people who want to feel better about themselves and they will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And because of that, these three letters that Paul wrote are extremely relevant for us today. And so with that, we're going to spend the next several weeks of this series digging in and studying the first letter and second letter of Timothy and Titus. We're going to dig out the common themes. We're going to look at the problems of the churches at Ephesus and Crete. And we're going to look at the pitfalls that we ourselves can fall into. And then we're going to uncover the solutions to these problems that Paul outlines. And we're going to do what we can do to apply these things to our church that Paul instructs for us to do. Because the time for us as a congregation, is to grow up. It's time for us to grow spiritually. It's time for us to develop a more godly pursuit, that we develop more godly leaders so that we can help this church grow towards the spiritual maturity that God is calling us to, so that we can be the pillar of truth in this community that God intends for us to be. And so let's get started this week by examining... One of the key themes that runs throughout these letters. And I think this is probably the biggest theme that Paul deals with in these three letters. And that is doctrine. Paul talks about doctrine over and over and over and over again. In fact, this Greek word right here, um, which is one of the words that that gets translated as doctrine. This word is um, is used 15 times in these three letters. And let me put this in perspective for you. This word right here is used a total of 22 times in the New Testament. That's 68% of the times this word is used. It occurs in these three short letters. Remember, there's 22 books in the New Testament. Okay? And there are actually two words in the New Testament that get translated as doctrine because they are both related. They have the same root word and they really have essentially the same meaning. And both these words combined in the New Testament occur about 45 times. Which means a full one-third of the the references to doctrine are in these three letters that make up less than 10% of the New Testament. Doctrine is a huge and important theme in these letters. In fact, Paul says to Timothy that he is to to tell certain people to not teach Uh, other or false doctrines. He points out that people who sin are lawless and and are disobedient, that, that, that what they do is contrary to sound doctrine. He tells Timothy that servants of Christ are trained in the faith and good doctrine. He tells Timothy to devote himself to the preaching of the word and teaching doctrine. He tells him to keep a close watch on his behavior and the doctrines that he teaches. He tells Timothy that those who serve masters must honor them so that the name of God and the doctrine of God will not be reviled and then he points out that paul tells timothy you know and as we pointed out before paul tells timothy that that there are going to be people who just are not going to put up with sound doctrine or sound teaching and he tells titus that to, to, to teach what accords to sound doctrine doctrine is a huge topic in all three of these letters but why why is this such a big deal why does paul make it such a big deal about doctrine well, a couple things. Number one, doctrine literally means teaching. Okay? It means what is taught. So a doctrine is a teaching. Okay? And specifically, it's a teaching about faith. And so Christian doctrine is essentially the teachings about Christianity. It's all the things that one is to learn as a Christian. In fact, that's how Christian is passed from one person to the next and from one generation to the next. It's passed down through teaching or doctrine we are taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. This doctrine... We were taught about our sin and our need for redemption. We were taught about Christ's death and how he is a substitute for us on the cross. We were taught that, that we are saved by grace alone in Christ alone. We were taught that the Holy spirit comes to live inside of us. When we get saved, we were taught that God is at work inside of us as Christians, transforming us into the image of Christ. We were taught that when we die, we immediately are in the presence of God. If we are saved, we are taught that, that when we are saved, that we will be raised back to physical life at the resurrection of the dead and, and those who were not in christ and not saved they will be cast into the lake of fire which is hell we are also taught to love our neighbors we're taught to love um, other christians and and to love our enemies and, and that we are to you know we are taught that we need to repent and forgive and walk in grace and truth and we're also taught that we're to go out into the world and to make disciples of all the nations all of that and more is Christian doctrine? They are the Christian teachings. They teach us how we are to have a relationship with God and, and how we are to live our lives once we have that relationship. And so, doctrine is a big deal. Now, the second thing is there's a difference. This is important. There's a difference between doctrine that is true and doctrine that is false. There is a true. There are true teachings about Christ and faith. Okay. And then there are false teachings about Christ and faith. For instance, there's a doctrine called justification by faith. Okay? It's, it's the belief that you are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. You are saved by faith and you know, what you believe and not what you do to obey the law. And this doctrine comes directly from Paul when he says in Ephesians 2:8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God. And not the result of works, and so, that may, so no one may boast. So doctrine of justification is, is, is a true doctrine. The doctrine of justification by faith is a true doctrine. Now, from the very beginning, false teachers actually attacked this doctrine, and they taught a different doctrine, which said that, yes, you must, you know, to be saved, you must have faith in Christ, but you also must obey the law. Justification came from works of the law. It's what you did that saves you. And and so this is a stark in stark contrast to what Paul says. It's in contrast to what we actually believe. And so from the very beginning, there's always been true doctrine that comes directly from the Word of God and the teachings of the apostles, like Paul and Peter and James and John, who ended up writing the New Testament. And then there. Has also been false doctrines that come from false teachers who twist you know the word of God and or they just simply deny that what the apostles taught in the New Testament. Now, early on the apostles made a point to preserve these teachings. They knew how important they were. All right? And so they, 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 they preserved these, these teachings of the Christian faith, and they did that by teaching other people, other Christians, and they did by writing letters and books of the New Testament so they could be passed down, you know, they could pass down this Christian faith from one generation to the next, okay? And these true teachings are called orthodox teachings or orthodox doctrine, and the word orthodox actually means straight teaching, Okay, ortho is straight. Dox is teaching. That's why when you go to the orthodontist, you go them there so he can straighten your teeth. Orthodox is is straight or right teaching. And then false doctrine, teaching that is in opposition to what the apostle Paul taught. Those are called heterodox, which means they're crooked teachings. All right, they're teachings that are called heresies. They are false teachings. They're crooked teachings. They are teachings that are not right. They're false teachings about Christianity. Now, here is why this is important. This is the part that you have to understand. Orthodox teachings about Christian faith, those teachings lead to life. Because as we said before many times, it's not what you do that saves you. It is what you believe that saves you. Which means you must believe the correct things about Christ and faith in him to be saved. Orthodox teachings lead to life. But heterodox teachings lead to eternal separation from God or hell. Because if you don't believe in Jesus, or you believe in a false Jesus, or you believe that you must earn your way into heaven apart from faith in Jesus, you're believing in something that's untrue, and therefore you are not saved, but instead you are condemned. That's why this is so important. The difference between orthodox doctrine and heterodox untrue doctrine is literally the difference between life and death. If you believe, if what you believe is false, you were condemned. If what you believe is true, then you were saved. In fact, Jesus himself is very clear about this point. In John three eighteen. he says, Whoever believes in himself is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. The difference between sound doctrine and true doctrine... Or false or other doctrine... Is literally life and death. The difference between sound and true doctrine... And false and and, and other doctrine is literally life and death. That's why this is so important. That's why Paul talks about it over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's why he talks about it in these letters... Through all three letters over and over again. And, and, and it's, it is, it's, it's important then and it was, it's also just as important today because in our postmodern world there's lots and lots and lots of false doctrines. There's lots and lots and lots of false teachings such as the false doctrine that teaches that Christ is Michael the archangel. That he's a created being. It's a false doctrine. Or that or Christ is the brother of Satan. Or the Unitarian doctrine that denies the Trinity. There is also this false doctrine that, that's spreading around that hell is just simply an allegory and that Satan is a myth. There's also uh, you know a doctrine that says that, that all get saved. They'll get, all get saved in the end because God's a loving God. He's not going to consign anybody to hell. Even if they don't believe in Christ, they're going to get saved anyway. Right? And in the last few years, the doctrine that's growing, that the Bible doesn't actually teach that sexual you know, deviancy is a sin. There are people that believe that, that, that the Bible doesn't teach that sexual deviancy, such as homosexuality or fornication, which is you know, sex before marriage. They don't believe that, 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 that the Bible teaches that, that stuff is a sin. Okay? That's the new doctrine. Our postmodern world is fraught with false doctrine. That's why Paul's letters are so important to us today. Now, let me just stop right here because I'm going to clarify something for you. Because when it comes to true doctrines, when I'm talking about orthodoxy, I am talking about the essential things a person must believe to be saved. Because there are Christian doctrines that are essential to faith, that you can't have faith without them. And there are other Christian doctrines that are not, that you, whether you believe in them or not, are not going to affect your salvation. For example, if a person, for example, a person must believe in the literal physical resurrection of Christ to be saved. Paul says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection is not negotiable. You must believe that otherwise you're not a Christian. In fact, Paul even says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then happen. Your faith is in vain. So it's essential that we believe in the resurrection. Now, on the other hand, there are lots of doctrines or teachings about how and when the world may come to an end, right? And these teachings have a wide diversity of opinion. And these teachings about the end times, you know, they are not essential to faith in Christ. It doesn't matter whether, whether you understand or don't understand it doesn't matter whether you know or, 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 or don't know how and when Jesus is coming back. The only thing that you really need to believe is that Jesus is, in fact, coming back. But you don't need to know how and exactly when. So it doesn't matter if you're a premillennial dispensationalist or an amillennialist or any other kind of It's because you just don't care, right? It has nothing to do with your salvation in Christ. Your end times perspective is not essential to your faith. And speaking of end times stuff, there's also a number of other non-essential doctrines like this that people really get all worked up about and wrapped around the axle about, and it actually creates a lot of friction in the church because there because there are so many of these people, you know, who believe what they believe and they believe they're right, right, and they believe they're right so much that everybody else is wrong. It's not that they that they actually had done all the homework; they just believe everybody else is wrong. And so and so, what happens is they, they believe this so strongly that anybody that disagrees with them, either Obviously doesn't read scripture or they're just plain stupid. Okay. This, these kind of things, when they get handled the wrong way, can actually create division in the church unnecessarily. That's why here first Baptist church, we focus mainly on essential Orthodox doctrines because we want to teach. What is you need to know to be saved and what you need to know in order to live the life that God's calling you to live. There is certainly room to talk about these other things, but there is absolutely no room at all to get divided over non-essential issues. Now, this is... Now, with that, um, in these letters, Paul himself is concerned with sound doctrine, orthodox doctrine. He encourages both Timothy and Titus to work to guard and preserve and to teach the sound doctrine that he gives. Right? Right? And he gives him instruction to rebuke and to correct and, and anyone who teaches anything else that is not this orthodox doctrine. In fact, he says that those who are pastors are supposed to do that, right? They're to teach sound doctrine. He tells Titus, but as for you, teach what accords to sound doctrine. He tells Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, or basically to doctrine. And this urgent message to teach and guard sound doctrine of Christianity is just as relevant for us today as it was for them in the first century. We as a church need to learn and to hold on to and to preserve and teach sound doctrine. We need to be students and stewards and teachers of the orthodox teachings of the Christian faith because we live in a world that's filled with false teaching. And these false teachings are leading a lot of people to hell. We need to be the pillar of truth that God is calling us to be. We need to do that. By teaching and defending and preserving for the next generation this true, sound doctrine. Now, there's I mean, some people who who call themselves Christians. They will say things like, "Well, you know, I just don't believe, you know, in doctrine. I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in doctrine. I mean, doctrines are so exclusive, and doctrines are so divisive, and, and do- doctrines cause people to divide themselves, and, and and doctrines cause wars, and doctrines are just they're just man-made beliefs and traditions, and they really have nothing to do with who Christ is and what He wants." Us to do. So I don't believe in doctrines. I believe in Jesus. Well, what is it about Jesus that you believe? Well, I believe that Jesus, when he came to earth... Let me stop you right there. Let me stop you right there. Okay? Because that right there is doctrine. Well, that's not doctrine. I just believe in Jesus. Well, what is it you believe about Jesus? Well, I believe that he... Wait a minute. The moment you believe something about Jesus, my friend, that is doctrine. Anytime you believe something about Jesus or faith or religion or anything else, that is a teaching. That is a doctrine. You can say that you believe that Jesus is not God. That's still a doctrine. You can say that, that he was just a great teacher who was never resurrected. That is still a doctrine. Everybody, everybody has a doctrine. Whether you know it or not, everybody has a doctrine. Everybody believes in a doctrine. See, atheists believe that that there is no God. That is still a doctrine. It is the doctrine of the teaching of atheism. Everyone who believes in something has a doctrine. The only question is, is that doctrine true or not? Which is the heart of the matter, right? Because we said before, true orthodox doctrine leads to life and false doctrine leads to spiritual death or hell. Everybody has a doctrine, (laughs) The only question is, is whether or not that doctrine is true. And it's the job of the church and the church leaders and, and the members of the church to learn and, and, and to teach and to defend sound, true, orthodox doctrine. Another the relevant question to ask at this point is, what is the source of that orthodox, life-saving Doctrine? How do you tell the difference between the doctrine that's true and the doctrine that's false? How do we define really what's orthodox? Well, well, Paul gives us the answer to that question in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, okay, which means it's the very Word of God. And it is profitable or useful for teaching or doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, the source of all doctrine, the source of all orthodox doctrine is Scripture. Scripture, the Bible, is the source of all doctrine, and it is the source of all sound doctrine because it simply isn't a collection of writings from some wise men. This Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is the very Word of God. That is why it's the source. Because... It's the very word of the creator God himself. So what part of scripture is God's word? All scripture is the word of God. But I heard there's parts of the Bible that, that, that are just some rehashed fables of some prehistoric nomadic, you know, uh, uh, Semitic tribes. And, and uh, all scripture is the word of God. Well, you know, there's some, some really gruesome parts of the Old Testament and that are really hard to take. And it just seems like that isn't who God is. And I just really struggle all, all scripture is the word of God, even the parts you don't like. Well, wait a minute. When Paul says all scripture, now he's not talking about his own writings, right? He's talking about the old Testament, not his own words. In fact, there are many people that believe that the words of Paul probably aren't even valid scripture. right? He's just included because of some church traditions and people decided they wanted him in there, right? And there's this whole theology from Paul that actually doesn't even fit within the gospel. Well, let me just tell you something. Um, The apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest friends and who was there for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus himself. um, And and who was there when Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. All right, Peter... Uh, writing between 67 and 68 AD, which is actually after Paul's last letter and perhaps even after the death of, of Paul, he said this. He said, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, his letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. And this word scriptures right here, this the Greek word in there, actually is used almost exclusively for holy scriptures. Peter believes that the letters of Paul are holy scriptures, that are very words of God. You see, the early church and the apostles who were with Christ viewed the writings of Paul as scripture. They believed that, this, that these letters... Or the very word of God. And so when Paul's letters say all scriptures breathed out by God. It's the equivalent of the word of God speaking on its own behalf. So what part of the Bible is God's word? All of it. The Old Testament. The New Testament. It's all the word of God including the parts about love and grace. And so about all the parts that are about repentance and and justification and sin and hell. It is all the very word of God. Of God, and because it is the Word of God, it is useful for doctrine and teaching. We learn that, okay, and we learn what we know and what is essential for us to know from the Bible, which means if there's a doctrine that is not in the Bible, it is a false doctrine, like the doctrine of purgatory. It is not in the Bible, it's a false doctrine. It's a, it's a text taken out of context that gets twisted up into something else. It's a false doctrine. Or the doctrine that says that God is one of many other gods and an endless sec, uh, succession of gods you know, who were once men and who worked really hard and then followed all the rules and became gods themselves, who then give birth to people who are trying to become gods themselves. That doctrine is not in the Bible. The only source for sound doctrine... The only source for sound doctrine that we have is, in fact, the Word of God. The Bible is the only place that we can look to to definitively define what is true and what is false. And because of that, I think that the first doctrine we must learn and teach and defend is the doctrine of inspiration. We must believe the Bible is the very source of the Word of God. The, the Bible, is in every sense, is a source of truth. It is the Word of God. And, and, and this is what, that the Word was actually inspired and breathed out by God. Now, God certainly used men to write His Word, to write the Bible. Okay, In fact, He used 40 different people to write the Bible. And each wrote from their own personality and experience. But these men spoke from God as they, as, as Peter says, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God wrote the Bible through these men. And so every word of the Bible in the original language and in the original copies is the word for word what God spoke through these men. And because of this, and because it's the word of God, then it is authoritative, it is infallible, and I believe it's inerrant. And because it's authoritative, infallible, and errant is the only source for us to learn and to teach this life-saving doctrine of the Christian faith. It must always be the basis of all of our teaching. And, 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 and there are going to be some, you know, who's going to say, "Wait a minute! Well, the Bible, you know, you, we have is in English, all right? And and the words of God, it was actually written down in Greek and Hebrew, which are different from English, and, and not to mention. There have been found lots and lots of manuscripts that go far back as the second century, and and, and no two copies are exactly the same. Every copy has a difference. I mean, there's lots of variations between these copies. So how can you say that the Bible that we have today is is the Word of God? And it's really simple. It's called textual criticism. And what textual criticism is, it's really simply the detailed study of all the known Bible manuscripts where scholars compare every single document, and they look at every word and every letter and every punctuation, right and, and and the source of where these documents came from and what the materials were written, written on, and what they're doing is they're trying to ascertain what, what the Bible originally said, and the results of, uh, 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 of modern scholarship have established that the Bible that we have today is is actually ninety nine point five percent accurate to what was originally written down okay that's incredible ninety nine point five percent accurate. And that's, and that last 0.5% of the text, it's not really been 100% settled by textual criticism. According to the consensus of scholars, even those who don't believe in Jesus, they say that it does not affect not one single essential doctrine. That every single doctrine that we know about in the Christian faith is in the Bible that we have today. Every single Christian doctrine is in the Bible that we have today. There's nothing that's been, no little deviancy, no little deviation actually changes that. And so, so we have in our possession, in fact, the very word of God. And from that we can learn and defend and teach the essential doctrines of our faith, which is exactly what we're called to do as the pillar of the truth in the world around us. Now, in this series, we're going to continue through these letters that Paul wrote and we're going to dig out the doctrines and the lessons that he wanted for Timothy and Titus to learn. And we're going to take every bit uh, uh, of that, and we're going to apply it to our church family, and we're going to apply it to our lives. And we're gonna, we're gonna, and we, we're gonna do what we can do to grow and become the mature Christ, you know, Christ followers that God is urging us to be. And, and, and the foundation that we're going to use and we're going to learn from and to teach this is the very word of God. And so with that. I want to wrap up today. I want to make this very practical for you. And so what I, what, what I want to do is I just want you to take out your Bible there or, or the Bible that's in the front row in front of you or the mobile phone that, that your Bible is on. Okay, just take that and I want you to hold it up in the air. Okay, yep, come on, lift them up, hold them up in the air. And I want you to repeat after me. Okay, and say this, this Bible is the very word of God. It's authoritative for my life. It's useful to teach me doctrine. It has the power to provide correction. It has the ability to train me in righteousness. And I believe with all my heart that this Bible was breathed out by God himself. And I will cherish it. And I will study it. So that I can know and defend and teach Sound orthodox doctrine. Now, for your homework, I want you to, just, want to take some time and get with God's Word, and, and I want you to read through First and Second Timothy and Titus this week. Okay, these are really, really short letters, and you can do this in no time. Okay, they're like some of the shortest books in the entire Bible. You can you can do this really in just just a little in, in, in no time at all. But read these letters because they're going to help you. Um, to really get your head wrapped around where we're going in this series. I promise it will make a difference in your life. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your grace and mercy, and I thank you for all that you've given to me. I thank you, Lord God, for, you know... um, that that your word speaks to us this way, that it is your word, that we can know that it's your word. And we don't have to doubt. We know for certainty that it's your word. We can know through textual criticism and through history and through through the preservation of these manuscripts and just through the historical record that this word is yours. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. And it's infallible and it's your very word and that it can instruct us and train us and and help us to grow to be the people you want us to be so we can be the, the church you want us to be so we can be the pillar of truth in this community. And that's what our community needs is this pillar of truth. It needs to hear Jesus. And so I pray that you'd raise up in this congregation of people who want to go out and share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with the community and with the world and that we would take this community by storm. And I pray your protection on those who are here and those who are not here. And I pray that most importantly, you're glorified in every part of our lives and all that we do. We love you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.